Welcome to Have You Seen This, the podcast about obscure, overlooked, and misbegotten cinema. All discussions will be spoiler heavy. You have been warned. Jennifer Albright, and we've got a very special guest for you today. Uh, he's the scion of a fabulously wealthy publishing dynasty and holds a controlling interest in the Chapo podcast fortune. Will Miniker, thanks for coming on the show. Greetings. Hello, everybody. Hi, Jennifer. Nice to be here. <laughs> nice to have you on. Um, the reason I asked Will on is uh, it stemmed from a little kerfuffle that happened on uh, uh, hell hole of a website known as Twitter. Um, a bunch of us were talking about an article which came out in, what the hell's the name of this rag? It's, uh, it's a national post. It's a, a the sort of, it's a Canadian newspaper. Oh, it's Canadian. So like, yeah, Canada. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> like, what do they have to say that's important? Uh, um, Twitter, Twitter may be hell to you listener, but it's home to me. <laughs> <laughs> what you, what you call hell, Will calls home. Absolutely. <laughs> so um, we were discussing, uh, in our own inimitable way, this article, which was written by a guy named Colby Kosh. <laughs> I call him Colby Kush. I call him Colby Cheese Dick. <laughs> um, I guess he is a... Is he, is he a film reviewer or is he just like some rando? I've been told that he's just sort of like some mid-tier uh, Canadian media figure. Oh, jeez. Well, like, I think he's just like some like columnist and newspaper guy who's like also on TV sometimes. He's, he's a straight-up fuckboy, though, and we're going to talk about why. <laughs> Can you imagine being mid-tier by Canadian standards? And also, I'd just like to say right off the bat, uh, Colby is, is such a great name because Colby is also the name of uh, Carl Diggler's son. <laughs> Oh my if god, you're, if you're this a guy fan of the Carl Diggler, Diggler if you're a fan of the Carl Diggler canon, shout out to Felix and Virgil. His large round son is named Colby. Well, have you seen this guy's picture? He does look like someone's large round son. Yep. It's again, it's perfect. It's like uh it's like Charles Dickens. The name says everything about the character. <laughs> Hard times with Colby Cheese. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so he um this commentator such as he has wrote an article um, titled uh, The Obliviousness of Martin Scorsese's Old Man Rant Against Superhero Cinema. <laughs> uh, I found, okay, so I, I found this out. Someone sent this to me because I, I saw, again, on Twitter, someone obliquely saying that somebody was criticizing Martin Scorsese online. And, like, I'm, like, one of those teens uh, that get mad when someone's, like, they're someone gets like insults Beyonce and I'm like, they're trying to drag Marty. We have to protect <laughs> Marty. <laughs> here comes the beehive, but for Martin. Yeah. <laughs> here comes, here comes the, uh, the, yeah, the, the Marty squad. That's me online. I, I, I will not, ha- I'll not hear a bad word said against Marty I agree. online or in real life. Yeah. Cause like, and admittedly this is, um, I don't want to say it's, it's well, no, it's not out of the scope 
of this podcast, have you seen this? Because that was literally our reaction to reading this article was, have you seen this shit? <laughs> yeah, exactly. And uh, someone sent me the article and I got it and I looked at the headline and I was like, you know what? I'm putting this aside. I'm going to eat dinner first before I read this because <laughs> I, I know I need, to, I need a full stomach before I became nude and mad. <laughs> I need my blood sugar up. Absolutely. Yeah, I can, definitely. I can dive into this. Because, yeah, like, um, so we're, what we're going to do is we're going to bring a little bit of the Chapo reading series to have you seen yeah. this. And uh, we're just kind of going to, we're going to go through this a little bit, which, and it, God, it, it starts so well just from the first line. Yeah, um, it's great. He says, like Martin Scorsese, I am an aging white dude who is increasingly detached from contemporary cinema. Uh, what, what I love about that is that the, the first line of your article, you just tell your audience, I shouldn't be writing about the topic I'm about to expand on. <laughs> yeah, because honestly, it's hard not to read that line. Just be like, oh, okay, I guess I don't need to read this. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, stop reading here. Yeah, and but, you know, um, I accept opinions from all over the spectrum, including those of aging white dudes. You know, mm -hmm. myself being uh, extremely old and extremely white, you know, okay, like, you know, I'll roll with that. So uh, he goes on to say, Hollywood has been taken over by superhero comics, which I didn't even really like as a kid. I thought Superman was boring then, and I think so now. Oh, we got a real uh, intellectual here. I was boring as a child and as an adult. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, before we move on, I, like... had, I, had, I had no friends then or now. The things that I was supposed to like as a kid, I didn't like. And I don't like them now as an adult either. <laughs> I'm completely insufferable throughout my entire life. Now, we need to point out, like, if uh, any, for anybody who's listening to the show, we, you know that we are not, we're not snobs here. You know, we don't hate popcorn entertainment. There's, there's, no, there's nothing really wrong with just wanting to enjoy a movie. Um, nothing at all. Nothing but, at all. I don't trust anyone who doesn't appreciate high and low culture. Indeed. And, you know, that's kind of the whole point of the podcast. So It's, it's, a, it's a rich tapestry. Indeed. So, but uh, Colby disagrees. Um, so he says, you might expect me to have been nodding enthusiastically over the holidays when the Associated Press released an interview in which Scorsese griped that cinema is gone. The cinema I grew up with and that I'm making, it's gone. Um, I don't I guess think I... Marty's wrong here. <laughs> No, uh, yeah, he's t he's taking issue with this, or he like he's gonna go on to be like, you know, Marty's so out of touch and, and entitled or whatever. But uh, Scorsese is exactly right. I mean, he, he is he's completely right about uh, cinema being gone, like in terms of uh, the kind of filmmaking uh, that Hollywood and the movies that he grew up with they're they're not doing anymore, and largely has been replaced by now just these franchises and like. We now live in a world where you're going to see a Marvel and Star Wars movie every year, basically, until you die. And But he's also right in the sense that, like, uh, film is kind of like a something that you go to the movie theater to see is also dying. Like, movies have become, and entertainment have become much more personalized, and it's, it's much more uh, immediate, at, like, you know, either through your laptop or on your TV screen. And I... And, I'm not necessarily going to lament that either because, like, you know, I like watching movies and I like the ease with which I can watch them. But um, uh, not just – I mean people who be like, oh, I, I must go to the cinema and, and see things in the theater. It can sound a little snobbish, but I think there there's a truth to that. There, like, there's mm -hmm. something about uh, the kind of shared experience and, and, and movie – 
there's nothing in the TV that can replicate uh, seeing film in a theater projected, in my opinion. Yeah, and my, because my take on it is, um, like, I'm kind of of two minds about it, because having lived in L.A. for so long and spent a lot of time, like, going to screenings in town and stuff like that, um, you know, I always tell people, okay, like, you need to see Lawrence of Arabia, but you need to see it in 70 millimeter. Like, that's really the way to see it, you know? Um, and I have so many good memories of, like, screenings that I've been to that were just, again, like, as a communal event, like, a lot of the stuff that they do at the Cine Family, like, um, co-host Tim and I went to see a double feature of Better Off Dead and One Crazy Summer with Savage Steve Holland and, and uh, Curtis Armstrong in person, and it's like, <laughs> you don't get that shit, like, on your iPad, you know, like, that's yeah, great, yeah. but at the same time... You know, I was boning up on my Scorsese films for this podcast, and I was like, you know, shit, I can just, like, rent, I can rent, uh, like, Mean Streets or Who's That Knocking at My Door, like, right the fuck now, and watch it on my laptop, you know? Yeah, so, I mean, like, uh, nothing about, like, the, the sort of, uh, the, the way technology is changing entertainment, like, nothing in that I think is inherently good or bad, but but there are trade-offs in all of these things, and for someone like Scorsese, who is... Uh, you know, really dedicated his life not just to making uh, movies, but also like studying and 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 teaching about uh, the history of uh, film. Um, uh, I, I think he has a good reason to lament uh, certain things that are changing. Yeah, especially because like Scorsese's love of the medium just runs like so bone deep. You know, like he, I mean, it's hard. Like, because a lot of us love movies, but. You know, I like I went to film school and like I've seen a lot of shit, but like I don't even have that burning and abiding passion that he does just for the medium. You know, this is a guy who watches a movie like every day or something. You know. Yeah. <laughs> but um. You well, saw... actually, the uh, the Colby the example he uses is Lawrence of Arabia, just in the next uh, paragraph here. Yeah, and this is this is where it gets really good because uh, his because. Uh, Colby Kosh goes on to say, at one moment, he is offering the pretentious film student's complaint that the mystical communal dream experience of being in a theater is dying. The experience of seeing Vertigo and the searchers in VistaVision. Oh dear, he's going on about film formats. <laughs> <laughs> I'm giving the fucking finger right now. Because, okay, I played roller derby for a few years. My skate name was Cinerama, spelled S-I-N-N, and my skate number was 70 millimeter. So when I saw this, I think I saw on Twitter like, oh, hold me back. Hold me back, motherfuckers. <laughs> it does look better. And, and uh, here's the other thing. Like, uh, okay, that, that increasingly now with like, uh, like digital projection or whatever and like 4K cinema and like, or like where the, what is it where the frame rate is really high? I'm thinking of the, the Ang Lee movie that came out this year. They yeah, are like, um, I, I have no interest in seeing, I'm sure it sucks. The Billy Lynn's halftime walk, right? Yeah. Apparently that movie was filmed with like this new technology that makes it look like incredibly realistic or like there's so many frames per second and like every pixel is just so crisp and clear. I think that kind of sucks. Like I think I think the like that what makes the film great is kind of the illusion of it, right? And and like the, the the like when it looks too real, right? I think it calls attention to the fakeness of it. Right. You know, so like I like if it looks too good, like it, it's just drawing your attention to like the, it, it's harder to get lost in it. Unlike the the, the great uh, like the the film formats that you're talking about. Well, did you see um, any of the Hobbit movies? 
Yeah, not in theater though, but I, I had the same reaction. I thought it like it just drew attention to the fakeness of everything. Like yeah, I thought because, they looked bad. Yeah, because uh, co-host Tim and I went to see them. Uh, we saw the first one; it came out, and like, well, number one, like the movie isn't very good. The first one, I didn't bother to see the other two. And second of all, like it actually, like we saw it at um, the bridge like in, in West LA and you know, on like the IMAX screen or whatever. And it looked like shit. I was like, you know, if you're going to do a high frame rate, like at least make it look good. Cause it just like, it just looked murky and assy and it was unpleasant to watch. But also in, like, especially like in, in those movies, which are like a great example of just like the laziness of like CGI special effects or like everything is just CGI special effects. Again, it calls attention to how, how crummy most of those effects actually look. Mm hmm. And uh, I remember going to see, uh, I saw a screening of um, uh, Go-Go Tales and Mary at a film anthology in New York uh, that was hosted by Abel Ferrara. Oh, nice. And, I mean, he, he's a total weirdo in real life. But... <laughs> I, I'm shocked. <laughs> but uh, one of the things he said uh, that, that always stuck with me is that, like, after the movie, he was like, uh, everyone in this room just saw 18 minutes of uh, darkness and you just didn't realize it. And he's referring to like like the illusion of film when it's run through a projector, like it actually adds up to about like a, a fair amount of time that is just black, but the like the illusion in your mind fills in the gaps, right? Yeah, and he's like that's sort of it, Yeah, yeah, exactly. And he's like that is sort of like that's the kind of magic, that's the illusion of film. And uh, that always stuck with me is that like, you know, your your mind fills in those gaps. Yeah, and um, you know, and it I hate to be that guy who's like, oh, you know, analog, it's just so much warmer and richer, you know, but I mean, that like, that does apply, you know, because, yeah, like, um, so. and I was a projectionist for many years, and, you know, the, the act of, like, just physically holding film in your hand, you know, is, I mean, there is, there is something, like, really special about that, that, that this is, these frames, like, physically exist, as opposed to being, like, you know, ones and zeros in a drive. And, you know, when I say stuff like that, I'm like, Jesus, Jen, you sound so fucking pretentious. But, I mean, there's, like, <laughs> yeah. a truth to it. So, like, you know, the point is, is that you can scoff at, oh, film formats, like, who gives a shit, you know? But, I mean, it's like, don't... Um, and it does depend on, like, how much of a nerd you are, because, you know, obviously, like, I'm more the kind of person who's going to be interested in, like, frame rates and talk about shit like show scan and stuff like people never remember. But... You know, there's a reason that stuff is good and interesting, you know? Yeah. So, uh, this guy's full of shit, but, uh... <laughs> um, let's see. In the next heartbeat, he's complaining vaguely about political climate. They can make it very difficult to get the picture shown to get it made, ruin reputations. Uh, then his editor, the legendary Thelma Schoonmacher, happens to along to add foot footnotes. Shout out to Thelma, who's awesome. He's just tired of slam-bam crash, telling the audience to think what... Telling the audience what to think is what he really hates. I mean, again, I think uh, I think that's a legitimate uh, critique. I think, like, you know, the way movies are made now. Well, first of all, I, I feel like they just don't make movies anymore. Like, everything is based on uh, a comic book. It's a remake of something. Like, very, very little movies, very, very few movies are, like, original screenplays. Or I, I just feel like... The, the culture is so saturated with just recycling things that people are already familiar with. And, and I think like at a certain level, like that kind of banality and lack of imagination, I think is 
harmful. Like if you, if you think about like us as a culture, they're like we're not really creating anything new. Mm-hmm. We're just sort of redigesting things that are already widely known and palatable. Yeah. And um, it's something which definitely comes up. Have you read um, Easy Riders Raging Bulls? by Peter Yes, Austin? I have. Yeah, fantastic book. And it really lays out how we came to this place, you know, because you had this period in the 70s, like the second golden age of cinema, which in which, um, you know, these very risky films were getting made. But at the same time, um, studios realized that there were certain movies that were going to make them like a shit ton of money you know, like Jaws and Star Wars and stuff like that. And that led us straight into the 80s where, um, and it's not that filmmaking wasn't always a business. It has literally been a business since its inception, but it just became, um, you know, calcified into this completely uh, corporate enterprise where, you know, art is not even secondary, but like kind of like fourth or fifth down on the list of importance. Yeah, and like, and and the idea that like you know movies, uh, you know, like the big movies don't get made that are morally ambiguous, or yes. re- require uh, like a, a certain amount of um, homework on the part of the viewer. They like sort of question what they're being shown or why they think a certain way. I think everything is very uh, straightforward and kind of spoon fed. And I think again, Scorsese is right. And that's a perfectly good thing to complain about. Well, he goes on and he gets into Scorsese's movie Silence, which just came out. And I got to say, I haven't seen Silence yet. I haven't seen it yet either. I'd like no time this week. I haven't seen it yet either. Uh, I'm sort of like putting it off because I know it's going to be an ordeal. (laughs) (laughs) My friend who did see it says it's like it's two hours of uh, religious anguish and catechism followed by another hour of inhuman cruelty so sounds like, uh, a, fun, sounds like a fun day out at the uh, yeah exactly there. <laughs> well this is the funny thing with scorsese uh my friend and co-host matt chrisman who you may also be familiar with made the great point that uh scorsese because he is a conflicted catholic he uh he, he alternates between doing movies that are you know basically like a three-hour line of cocaine of just <laughs> psychotic uh <laughs> <laughs> just uh you know uh depravity like uh wolf of wall street for instance and crime and depravity and then he'll have to get on his religious kick again and sort of you know get into that english uh religious mode and sort of purge himself of the fun and depravity uh or the the glories of crime and evil which is yeah, speaking uh, speaking as an ex-catholic i'm like that's so fucking catholic it's like my yeah. next movie will be penance <laughs> that's that's what silence sounds like um but yeah but like this is a movie he's been trying to make for decades or whatever and uh he just you know uh it was inside of him and i he had to do it and 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 colby goes on to to uh you know uh sort of shit on him for like being like it's so self-indulgent to do this and like he's complaining about you know hollywood but it, it made it cost him 46 million dollars to make this like meditative movie about religious yeah and i think um i think i think we should highlight these words because like i don't don't even know where to start but okay um so he he did uh colby Koch describes silence and then he says in other words this is a narrative that needs one or two sets a cast and a camera 
The reporter then helpfully tells that tells us that Scorsese had some trouble raising the U.S. 46 million he needed to film the meditative silence. 46 million. That's not a typo. I checked. Uh, did that money go into the pockets of a big name cast? Al contraire, says the AP story. Everyone, including Scorsese himself, worked for scale. Very suddenly, uh, Scorsese's nostalgia appears as a form of lucrative insanity whose demise is possibly not to be regretted. Uh, and in the next paragraph, he says, An adaptation of the book might be an exciting prospect if, say, Pier Paolo Pasolini were alive to shoot it for $100,000 with non-actors and modern equipment. Okay, I think I said it on Twitter, but this bitch needs to keep Pasolini's name out his mouth. <laughs> and I, I like it. He's like, well, Silence would be a good movie if something completely impossible happened, like this guy were alive. <laughs> you know, it's like, he's like, oh, I, I would like that movie. You know, but like, hey, I would fucking love if Pasolini were still making sure. movies and alive. That would be fucking great. I'm not going to disagree with him there. I mean, the name of, the name of my the podcast Twitter account is Pasolini's Dead. So you know, there you go. <laughs> <laughs> but um, okay, like now I don't know very much about um, major film budgeting. I do know that okay, we know that everyone on this worked for scale, right? Obviously, because maybe they wanted to put the bulk of the budget towards other things, which I assume was going on location. Yeah, it's probably filming in Japan. It's like, that's not cheap. Right, yeah. And, um, like, you know, if you have... I, okay, here I am defending the rich guy. Um, <laughs> but if you have the opportunity to raise the money to make... What I assume, based on what I've seen of Scorsese's other input, like a beautiful, lyrical, well-shot film, why wouldn't you take that opportunity? Why would you be like, well, okay, like, give me $10,000, like, I'll do it, like, in my garage? <laughs> Is that more pure? Like, what the fuck? Yeah. And, uh, and like, and also, I, I want to point out, in the uh, in the previous paragraph, he, he writes that... Um, uh, like we all know Scorsese as, as at his best making violent energetic movies of street hustler life preferably with Nicholas Pileggi or some other outstanding reporter involved Scorsese's two explicitly religious films The Last Temptation of Christ and Kundun were so flaccid and awkward it is hard to look forward to silence at all what's funny about that is he says like uh, preferably with like some outstanding reporter or writer uh, Last Temptation of Christ is uh, based on a novel but the screenplay was by Paul Schrader so there you go yeah. A much better writer than him, in my opinion, at least uh, for a film. And I gotta say, Last Temptation of Christ and Kundun are not bad at all. They're both really good, in my opinion. Yeah, they're, they're obviously they're not going to be anyone's like favorite Scorsese movie. They're not going to be the one that you like rewatch all the time. But they're both, especially I think, Last Temptation of Christ, uh, totally worth watching and not at all flaccid and awkward. Yeah, because like I haven't I haven't seen Kundun, but I have seen Last Temptation of Christ. And again, I am not. I'm not spiritual, haven't been spiritual for many years, but at the end of Last Temptation of Christ, like, just the, the the final shot, you know, with, like, the Peter Gabriel music, and then, like, the frame, like, blows out. It was, like, a camera, camera malfunction, which ended up being fortuitous, and it's just gorgeous, and it's, like, you know, it is done, and I was, like, I felt... I fucking felt spiritual in that moment. Like, I was so fucking uplifted. I was, like, holy shit, that movie's really fucking good. It's not fucking flaccid. Yeah, no, not at all. Like, uh, and there's, there's, and, and like he, and, like, and what pisses me off is that he's just saying, like, he's saying, "Hey, Scorsese, just 
just do the movies that we all like, okay? Just like, just do another crime movie, okay? Like enough with this self indulgence. Like he doesn't like, like as an artist, like you have, a, like he has a responsibility. Like he's demanding that he just be spoon fed movies that he already likes and appreciates, right? Like that, that Scorsese like has no right as a director to uh, do a movie <clears throat> that's different from what this asshole expects or already likes. Yeah, because it's like, I'm not going to judge him if he puts on, like, Goodfellas all the time, because Lord knows Tim and I have done that. Like, we've seen that movie, like, 75,000 times. I've seen that movie probably well over 50 times. Yeah. <laughs> but, like, but yeah, to be like, ooh, like, why don't you just keep making the same movie over and over again? It's like, he's like the, the Bart Simpson, I didn't do it boy, yeah. you know? Just, just say the lines. Say, the, say line, the line, Marty. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah, and so... he's like, yeah, and he's complaining that he spent all this money on it, and it's just like, look, it, if there's fifty million dollars out there, I mean, in the grand scheme of things, nobody should be fucking making movies. I suppose if you take this idea that like, well, there's starving kids in the world, but like, if there's that money out there, I'd rather it be going to, uh, like, I think you know, a major artist and filmmaker like Scorsese to do what he whatever he wants with it, than it be spent making ninety nine percent of the other shit that it would get spent on in Hollywood. Yeah, and filmmaking is really a unique art in that it is it requires so many resources and um, you know, uh not just the money to make it, like, you know, the crew and time and effort that go into actually like making a film, it's like, you know, even if you're doing it on like a micro budget, like there's still like so much work that goes into it and time and it's like that's just film because you're trying to recreate reality or like a a replication of reality you know, to put on a screen in front of people. Like, it's going to be, mm -hmm. it's going to be elaborate. And if you want to, if you want to shoot, like, on location and you want to make it good, you know, like, that's, nah, that's going to cost you a little bit of money. Like, I don't know what yeah, to do. Yeah, and, and the point is, like, Scorsese is one of the only people left who can get that money behind him to do a movie like this. Yes. You know? If you were anyone else, you would have to do this movie for $100,000 and just have it be, like, one set, you know? The fact that Scorsese can get that done because of his prestige and reputation, like let him let him do it. He's one of the only ones left who can do it. Yeah, and um, especially because there were so many other directors of his stature who actually, and I guess like he did here, had trouble getting funded. You know, in their yeah. later years, people like like John Huston or Kurosawa, like people that you think like would have money just thrown at him to, like, you know, make a fucking movie, please, like, make whatever the fuck you want. Like, they they have to fucking struggle to, to do it. Yeah. And, uh, like, th then he goes on in, like, this next paragraph. He says, uh, it raises the question why we need a famous American to interpret Endo's novel. And I like here he's, like, trying to be woke or something. Yeah. <laughs> like, he's like, Which is why is this white male uh, doing an adaptation of a Japanese author's novel? Yeah, Colby <laughs> Kosh is like, hey... White people, am I right? <laughs> yeah. yeah. My name is Colby Kosh, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> and he says, uh, you know, there already exist non-Hollywood adaptations by Japanese and Portuguese directors. And he says, and honestly, if some smartass in Netflix were to buy those properties and slap them up on the site, I would probably watch one or both and ignore Scorsese's version. Again, he's like, you know, well, uh, you know, if my, uh, if my sister had balls, she'd be my brother, you know? <laughs> Or just like, yeah, if Pasolini was still alive, I'd watch his movie. It's just like he's putting all of these conditions up just to avoid ever watching this movie. And it's like, dude, you don't have to. It's yeah. okay. Like, you can go, you can 
go watch like Cape Fear again. Like I did that the other day. It was great. <laughs> Counselor, <laughs> Counselor, out wherever you are. <laughs> I was actually just talking with uh, Nick the other Nick Mullen. Uh, you may know another podcast figure, the uh, legendary Nick Mullen. Oh, uh, the legendary Nick Mullen. <laughs> De Niro's performance in Cape Fear is so ridiculous. Like he didn't even try. Like, like his act, whatever he's doing there with that accent is is just like. He, did he work with his dialogue coach? He's like, nah, not going to do it. <laughs> nope. But at the same time, it's also kind of awesome. It works because the movie itself is very... I'd forgotten how flamboyant a movie that is. Yeah. Like, it's very pulpy and stylized, which fucking works. You know? And, like, just... God, the the scene with De Niro and Juliette Lewis, like, holy oh, shit. Oh, man. In the, the school play? Oh, God. Yeah. That's that's the the good shit. It's so oh, creepy. Oh, right, yeah. When he calls her on the phone and he's like hanging upside down and shit. Yeah. Like a bat in his apartment. <laughs> and he's like, I'm I'm a do right man. No, yeah, that movie is great. I love I love the Scorsese Cape Fear. But it, I mean, it speaks to this thing where he says like uh, he keeps saying he's like I'm I'll I'm forget this I'm eagerly awaiting his next gangster flick. Like he's sort of like saying like the only good movie Scorsese has done. Are the gangster movies like? Isn't that you know? a really oh. basic bitch thing to say? Too that is a super basic bitch thing to like, say. Like, oh well, I like the gangster pictures. I I don't care about this this fruity Japanese missionary shit. Who gives a fuck? <laughs> I hope this guy doesn't like the mission because then he's a fucking hypocrite. <laughs> and yeah, you know, he, he goes on to uh, also shit on his Age of Innocence adaptation, which you know I gotta say didn't work for me, but as a movie, but. Again, he like let let him do movies other than gangster movies. Like, why are you complaining about this? Yeah, like it's weird that he dragged. Um, in my opinion, you might disagree. It's weird that he dragged Age of Innocence and not Gangs of New York. That's true. Gangs of New York, I think, maybe Scorsese's worst movie. <laughs> <laughs> oh damn! Like, if you were, if you were no, to drag like, one I, of his, I, movies. I will actually. I will. I will not. I will not actively dispute you on that because I was very disappointed in it. It was just, oh, God, it was such a missed opportunity. Yeah, because... I mean, you know, there's some great parts of it, but, oh, like, yeah. as a movie, I thought it was dumb. Yeah, it was a bummer because, um, and I was fucking excited about it because I was like, oh, man, like, this is a part of history that no one's really addressed. The setting is so interesting. And then um, he kind of grafted that history onto this really, like, dull revenge kind of narrative. Yeah. And it was just like, uh, okay, you know. Yeah. Like, he tried, though. Oh, Marty, like, why didn't you just make that for $100,000? <laughs> um, I, I, so what, what, okay, so now when he moves on here, this is where he really gets offensive when he starts talking about Westerns. Oh, God! Shit, yeah. <laughs> in the next paragraph, he, he writes here, It is odd that Scorsese mentions Westerns prominently in his old man rant against contemporary cinema. Well, you know old man rants, Colby. <laughs> Yeah, he just said his first paragraph was like, I'm an old man. Listen to my rant. Uh, most of the Westerns ever made are unwatchable. What? That's a hell of a statement. <laughs> it took a while for even John Ford to start making fictional films of the visual caliber and subtlety of The Searchers. Then again, everybody who has an ounce of honesty will admit to enjoying Ford's stuff from the 40s, Stagecoach, and the Cavalry Trilogy more than The Searchers anyway. I don't know. I mean, where, where do you want to begin with this? Ugh, I don't even know. Like, fucking... Okay, so I... When 
uh, I think somebody retweeted him where he was trying to defend this all Western, most Westerns are unwatchable shit. And I tweeted him, and of course he didn't respond because he's a bitch. And I was like, dude, that's true of most genres. Yeah. Most movies. Like, and my um, my evidence for that is if, I don't know if you're familiar with these books, but there were a bunch of, um, it was probably when old Hollywood nostalgia first became, like, really big in the 70s. There were these um, big coffee table books called, like, you know, the MGM story, uh, the Warner Brothers story, blah, blah. It was just basically. Yeah, I, actually, I don't know that. Yeah, they're, they're really great because um, it's these huge books with, like, stills from, uh, like, everything a studio made. Like, this is, it's literally a catalog of everything the studio made up to, like, 1965 or something like that. And the interesting thing is, is going through it, you know, obviously you get all the, the classics in there, but then you're reading, because they get little capsule summaries of all the movies, and some of them are like, oh, God, like, no wonder I've never heard of that. That sounds like a pile of garbage, <laughs> you know? Like, and you realize, like, how much complete dross the studios turned out because they were turning out a product yeah you know and it's like okay well shove it into and you know it's not any different today it's like shove it onto all available platforms you know just keep the content flowing and somebody will watch it so night you know it's like the sturgeon's I mean, like, law 90 percent like, of everything is garbage but like he's saying that like ford didn't make movies that were like subtle or of a high caliber until the searchers which is like what the, what like he says, and like, yeah, he says he like, watched Stagecoach. Like, motherfucker, did you really watch Stagecoach? Oh, uh, and I, I, I pointed out with like when, when this came out. Like, I, I think my comment on this was like, uh, "My Darling Clementine" was made in 1946, which is, I think, John Ford's best best western, probably his best movie in my Arguably, opinion. Yeah, yeah, which is like, and, and again, like you watch that movie, and it is every bit as subtle. Like the way, like the the way, like the the shots in that movie, are like and the like the black and white and like the shadow and light and everything in that movie is incredible. Yes. it's incredible. And it's just like it, like the idea that like he, he it took him a decade later to reach the, uh, a high level of uh, subtlety and visual caliber is like, dude, fuck off. Yeah, <laughs> like, it's nonsense. Like, have you ever watched a movie? Like, yeah, and not to, another um, another. Western, which I would argue is like pre, almost pre-revisionist Westerns, you know, like the Anthony Mann stuff, is um, Oxbow Incident, which came out in 1943, which is mm -hmm. yeah. very, like, a very dark Western with really heavy themes about justice and vengeance, you know? So it's like, there weren't unsophisticated Westerns being made, like, pre the Yeah, that's the really dumb thing. Like, that's the dumb thing is to think that, like, uh, westerns got smart when they became like revisionist or whatever, or like, or, or like, uh, like, or became like politically subversive because they were about antiheroes. And like, as he says, like, uh, they become much more nuanced about baddies and goodies in his rhetoric, grow, grow bolder about exploring wider political and historical themes. It's just like, well, then you literally, you, you're, you didn't watch any of the non revisionist westerns. Yeah, it sounds like he, it sounds like he watched Stagecoach. And then he heard that The Searchers was really good, so he just watched everything from that forward. Yeah. I mean, like, I wonder if this guy even knows who Anthony Mann is, but whatever. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, and he goes on, the, the makers and consumers of superhero pictures at least pretend to have high informed expectations in this regard. They fucking shouldn't. That's, like, the worst <laughs> part about superhero movies is that they try to have broader political and historical themes to them. <laughs> they absolutely shouldn't. 
that's true. And like, it's, um, that's like a really, that's a big citation needed right there. I mean, cause, and it's easy, um, for me and my friends to sit around and be like, oh yes, everyone is a quite sophisticated, uh, moviegoer like myself. You know, there are huge swathes of people and they're not wrong. Just go in and watch a fucking movie and that's fine. You know? And yeah. the the amount of people watching superhero movies who are like just deep or like analyzing it on any level, like you know, it's it's a fraction. The, the, one of the main reasons that like the Marvel superhero movies have been more successful and have uh, achieved like a broader pop cultural cachet than the DC movies so far is because what they get is like. Yeah, there's like the the special effects and the staging, but like basically those movies are just about character pieces, right? They just get actors to be funny and snarky and like seem like they're having a good time, and like that's why they work, right? I'm not saying like I, I don't think they're great or anything, but like compare that to the Zack Snyder like Batman Superman movies, where like everything is just fraught with like you know <laughs> these you know uh, you know uh, like like he thinks it's like Wagner or something and it's like you know <laughs> like yeah, everything is with... fraught with these grand weighty themes about like God and man and like and it's just like they're they're utterly leaden because yeah. of it well because Zack Snyder is a guy who like wants to be super deep but I don't think he's smart enough to be super deep yeah because like um yeah I don't know well, I remember I remember liking just a... watching when I saw it but like having read the book so many times oh man forget it he actually he closes out like he closes that kobe closes out here he says uh after all superhero comics have already been through this cycle of genre evolution arguably a few times older just as i'd rather have pasolini's silence than scorsese's i might have liked to see scorsese's version of watchmen rather than Zack snyder's i no, i do not want to see martin <laughs> scorsese just, I, i'll just put that out there i do not want to see a martin scorsese comic book movie as far as Zack Snyder's Watchmen, I don't, I don't, I don't want to see that shit either. <laughs> I did see it, and, and what's so good about uh, Zack Snyder's Watchmen is that he basically does a panel-by-panel panel recreation of the of Dave Gibbons' artwork, mm-hmm. but manages... It's like the most faithful adaptation visually that manages nonetheless to miss every point of Alan Moore's writing. Yeah. It's the complete opposite of the story Alan Moore was trying to tell. Yes. Yeah, like having having seen it, I agree, and also having read Watchmen like a million times. Cause, uh, no, Zack Snyder was the kid who read Watchmen and thought Rorschach was the hero. <laughs> we'll say, Zack, please make better movies, and Zack will look down and whisper, "No." <laughs> I, I will say, in, in Zack Snyder's defense, and I believe I've said it on Champo. Uh, his Dawn of the Dead remake kicks ass. Oh, dude, I really liked that, and I don't even like I, I don't was, even like zombie movies. I I thought it was fantastic. I I loved that movie, and I had I had high hopes for you, Zach. Yeah, I think that I um eventually like like some some directors get a little too big of a sandbox to play in, and you know that's that's how that ends up going. <laughs> Anyways, that that's Colby uh, and his asinine opinions about uh, Martin Scorsese. And I guess, like, I wanted to come on and talk Scorsese because I feel like we were talking, like, you know, the basic bitch opinion is that, like, Scorsese's gangster movies are good and they're, when he, they're just, like, everything else he does sucks. But, like, Scorsese, like, and saying Scorsese is your, like, favorite director it has also become kind of a basic bitch opinion, you know? There are worse but, basic bitch opinions, yeah, though. But, <laughs> 
Which is true, but also totally acceptable in my opinion. No, for sure. Because like you know, when I like I think like the guy has made so many movies that I love and are entertained by any time I watch them. Like I like he has a completely solid track record in my opinion. Yeah, and um that actually goes back to um He says he's made more bad movies than good ones. Yes, that was it. Yeah. Which uh again, citation fucking needed on that. Like uh, I mean, are th- well, okay. Well, I'll I'll ask the question to you. You mentioned Gangs in New York, like what if any other Scorsese films do you find inferior or lacking in some way? Uh that I just that I, that I didn't like. Uh yeah, Gangs in New York. Uh I, God, I haven't seen it in a while, but I remember not liking Bringing Out the Dead. Uh, one where Nicolas Cage is the crazy ambulance driver. Yeah, I haven't I haven't seen that since it came out. I, I couldn't tell you. That was a, another. That was a Paul Schrader screenplay. Who, who normally I like. Um, I think Paul Schrader has had more misfires than Scorsese. I love Paul Schrader as a director too, though. No, I I I fucking love Paul Schrader, but you know he's. I think he's. I think he's had more more missteps than, yeah. than Marty. But like that's the thing is like. To be like an, an an artist of any value, you're gonna have to have missteps, right? Yeah. Like, like that that's good in a way. <laughs> like, I'd I'd rather they have missteps and like executing something that like a, a creative a big creative vision or something that that's personal or means something to them than just be like a hack. You no, know? I agree. Because for me, like, even, you know, Gangs in New York, which, you know, I didn't care for, but I'm like, shit, you know, that was that was worth going to see because there was interesting shit in it. Um, I th- also also in retrospect, I, I'm, I'm, I'm grading also The Departed kind of harshly because one, uh, it made the movie The City of Boston popular, which I'm against. <laughs> and two, it just is it's in is vastly inferior not by itself but in comparison to Infernal Affairs. Oh shit! Like which it's just fucking, a straight up remake agree. of fucking co-sign. Like, I love Infernal Affairs. Yeah, just like if, like just see Infernal Affairs. Yes. Like don't bother with Departed. See Infernal Affairs. Yeah, because Departed was like that was the reason why people were like you didn't like the Departed and I was like yeah I like I liked Infernal Affairs a lot you know it's kind of like um, yeah. kind of like for me like when I saw. Um, I watched Magnificent Seven after watching Seven Samurai, and I was, it was entertaining, but I was like, uh, Seven Samurai. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I actually watched the new Magnificent Seven with Chris Pratt and Denzel Washington. Oh, dear. And then watched the Kurosawa movie. And uh, <laughs> I thought the Denzel was better. I thought the new, I thought the, <laughs> I'm, I kid, I kid. <laughs> <laughs> I thought you were going to have to defend that one on Twitter, too. No, uh... Well, no, honestly, yeah, actually, for me, there's no reason to watch the the re- magnificent uh, the magnificent seven remake because Robert Vaughn isn't in it, so I don't give a <laughs> fuck. Yeah, um, yeah, no, but uh, I talking about the Scorsese movies that I think are like I thought were were misses. Um, I I my my timeline was roiled recently by my by the revelation <laughs> that I believe Casino. To be superior to Goodfellas. Now, I do. I think, in fact, I would say Casino is my favorite Martin Scorsese movie. Oh, damn. Obviously, it's always compared to Goodfellas. I like... Let me be clear, though. I love both movies more than life itself, and I've seen them, again, dozens and dozens of times. Could probably quote almost any line from, from them immediately. 
like Goodfellas is like a, a formative experience for me as a kid and like will always be among my all time films. I don't mean to say I think Casino is a better movie. I just mean that like in a push, me personally, I like Casino more. And for me, it comes down to this. Joe Pesci. Joe Pesci in Goodfellas, he won the Oscar for it, amazing. Joe Pesci in Casino, I think, better than Joe Pesci in Goodfellas. And there's so much more of him. They're like Joe Pesci had a lot of great moments in Goodfellas, but there are so many more great Joe Pesci moments in Casino. And his like him doing the Chicago accent and everything, like I just to me is the best. Like I, I like like Nicky Santoro in Casino is my favorite. And it's just like it's just so generous because there's so much of him. <laughs> well, you know, Will, I actually, I actually grok what you're saying because I far prefer a Grease two to the first Grease. <laughs> <laughs> no, but seriously, because like I, I actually, I, I, I dragged you on Twitter as a joke because it was funny. Um, but it, I got what you were saying because I know what it's like when you have like two, you have like two really excellent films, but one like speaks to you more. Like, Goodfellas is, like, it's a tighter movie. It's a yes. perfect movie. Like, uh, nothing, like, nothing's there that doesn't belong. It's a perfect movie from the first film to the left. Casino is sprawling. It's all over the place. It's digressive. But, like, that, to me, it is what I like about it. Yes. And, um, and it, it's funny, too, because uh, I actually have a huge problem watching long movies that aren't Lawrence from Arabia. <laughs> um, yeah. Because I, like, I have ADHD and my brain don't work right. So I tend to get a little bored during, and Casino's like, what, three hours long? Yeah, it's like three hours. Yeah. I had it on VHS and it was the double VHS yeah. box. <laughs> yeah, it, but I, I revisited Casino the other night and, uh, you know, because I wanted to check on your opinion to see if it was legit. <laughs> and um, I was not bored because the... Um, the trio at the heart of the film, you know, you have your, you know, De Niro Pesci, Sharon Stone, and the way that um, relationship forms and is pulled apart, like, mm-hmm. completely held my attention. Yeah. And then you had all the other stuff like, um, you know, Sharon Stone's, uh, Ginger's fucked up relationship with her old pimp that she's known since she was... James Woods! Hello! Not legal in any way, shape, or form. <laughs> James Woods in Casino, again, amazing. Yes. Amazing. And like, okay, slight digression about James Woods. Uh, <laughs> James Woods is the answer to the question: uh, Who is my favorite actor? Who is also absolutely a piece of shit in real life? Like the people, <laughs> the person I feel most problematic about loving pretty much every movie they're in. James Woods is the answer to that question, and his character in that movie, I think, is basically how he is in real life. Yeah. I can see that. And um, I would also like to make a statement on behalf of the Have You Seen This Organization. We are 100% pro Sean Young on this show. <laughs> we are glad that she apparently glued his dick to his leg. <laughs> People say she's crazy, but saying uh, she, she might have been onto something there. How long do you think it took him to, it took him to notice it? Also, uh, you know, through the grapevine, apparently James Woods does have a huge dick. So Ooh. take it for what it's worth uh, and then vomit. Oh, but. I will never love again. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, no, I agree. Like, um, that's, um, I also love in um, Casino when, uh, when Ginger flies with her pimp with her daughter in tow and all the little bits of 
business of him clashing yeah. with the kid who's just annoying the shit out of him. Yeah, <laughs> he's like, uh, you know, uh, he's like, you call him, and he'll, like, uh, uh, we'll get the the one thing that he cares about, and is pointing at her behind her back. Yeah, because it's like it's funny, but you are also so on edge as yeah. it's happening because you're like, oh my god, like what the fuck is gonna happen to this kid? <laughs> but yeah, so um, like I. I agree. Like, that is a legitimate opinion because, like, um, I expected to not like Casino at all because I'd heard from so many people that it was just, it was just, like, a big mess and, you know, oh, this is when, you know, avid editing was in, was a thing and everybody was playing with their shiny new digital toys and so, you know, he was just putting different things in different places because he could and, like, you know, maybe he was, but, you know, it's, uh, it works in a strange way if you have the patience to, like, stick with it. I mean, yeah, it's just like it's it's intoxicating. Uh, it's his by far his most violent movie. Like the lad, the end of that movie is like actually sickening. Like <laughs> the cornfield scene uh, scarred me uh, deeply when I first saw it. How uh, old the whole are you? scene. Oh, I was in my teens, probably. See, I saw. Um, I don't know if I've told the story in the show before, but uh, one time my dad and I were at Blockbuster, and he found Clockwork Orange. And he was like, oh, oh we nice. should, you should see this. It's really good. I was 14. think <laughs> <laughs> that was a little too young. So at, uh, we get to the scene where they're, um, they're about to rape the girl in the theater. My dad turns to me and says, ah, I probably shouldn't have rented this movie. But then we watched <laughs> the rest of it. <laughs> what a good dad. I know. My, da- my dad rules. Um, <laughs> but yeah, you were saying about um, the last scene in uh, Casino. Oh, yeah. The cornfield scene. But uh, also... Uh, a huge innovation in uh, voiceover narration. Yes. Where uh, Pesci has the voiceover narration throughout the movie and it cuts it off at that scene. I always love that. Or like, oh, shit. The, the voiceover narration catches up to reality at that moment right as they kill him, basically, right as they beat him to death. Oh, that's awesome. I didn't even know. And he's like, at the end of the movie, he's like, you know, uh, you know, we had to wait until things cooled down. Like, the boss just set up a meeting for us in this cornfield outside. Ah! And like, right as they get <laughs> kneecapped with the bat. Like... Oh, gee, you know, it makes you think. Maybe Scorsese should just make more gangster pictures. Yeah. I was going to say, the the one movie of his that I revisited recently that is a, a very slept-on Scorsese movie that I recently rewatched and thought was fantastic was uh, The Color of Money. Which I haven't seen, unfortunately. You haven't seen it? Okay, well, it's, uh, it's Paul Newman is reprising his role as Fast Eddie Felsen from The Hustler. So it's sort of an unofficial sequel to The Hustler where he's like, older and uh, it's tom cruise tom cruise plays this young like you know uh pool prodigy who paul newman kind of takes under his wing and like teaches him how to hustle and like go they go on the road together mary elizabeth um Mas- mastriano is that yeah Mastri- yeah whatever <laughs> it's, uh, the screenplay is by uh, richard price uh there's cami at forest whitaker has a small part in it iggy pop has a, a split second cameo in it oh nice um I highly recommend Color of Money. It's just like a, a, a super fun, entertaining movie from start to finish. And uh, and it's like, it's young Tom Cruise and like an older Paul Newman. And it's about like, he sort of, he, he mentors him and tries to teach him how to be like a like a pool hustler, basically. But it's also sort of meta because it's sort of, he's, it's all about teaching him how to act, basically. Which I think, which I thought was very interesting, like the interplay between uh, someone like Newman and, and a young Tom Cruise. So I'll have to add that one to the queue because yeah. the ones that um <clears throat> the other ones that i watched i, I rewatched um cape fear um i actually hadn't seen 
Mean Streets, in spite of being almost oh, 40. Wow. I don't know how the fuck I let that one slip by, because I, yeah. I loved Mean Streets. Mean Streets was, like again, another like totally foundational movie for me uh, that I saw like as a teenager, because it just was like... It was like had that sense of like uh, like independent film before like that sort of was a thing. It was just sort of like you felt like it was a movie that like you could make because it was just yes. a movie sort of about Scorsese and his friends and like the neighborhood they grew up in. Yeah, and know? that's what I dug about it, especially like in comparison to um, Scorsese's later stuff, where um, he did a lot of incredibly virtuosic filmmaking, like very technically mm -hmm. advanced, which. Um, is totally fine with me. Like, I love Steely Dan, so I'm not hating, like, uh, studio uh, cleanness and uh, <laughs> stuff like that. Yeah. But um, it, by comparison, you know, Mean Streets is, is very raw, you know, like, the audio's raw, and um, it has a much, like, not, not a messier feel, but, you know, there's, like, a lot of handheld going on because they couldn't afford camera track, yeah. um, stuff like that. And it really did feel, like, it, it is a movie that makes you go, like, God, I want to make a fucking movie, you know? Yeah, absolutely. And like, it's a, it's a great, it's a great New York City movie. Like, it, it, it it's, it, it really captures, you know, like the Lower East Side and Little Italy and this kind of this lost era of seventies New York. Like, yeah, really, like really gross seventies, like, dirty, yeah. crime-ridden, awesome <laughs> <Yeah>. New York. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. But yeah, like I said, it was that was the movie. Like I saw that when I was a kid. That like, just really, really got me hooked on movies because it seemed like something that like you could do that like one one could you could imagine making a movie like this yourself yes. and i'm like you know, i'm not a filmmaker i didn't become a filmmaker but like there's something about that that was like it was very uh intuitive and like just really like helped helped me get into movies in a way yeah and it's interesting too in light of the other um scorsese film i watched which was his first feature uh who's that knocking at my door um starring a baby harvey keitel yeah. Um, and it's a very it's it's kind of like a proto Mean Streets because you know again it's about these in in that same milieu you know like Little Italy and these like hierarchical one of the things that interests me most about Scorsese films is like the hierarchical male friendships. Yeah. And you know a culture which is like utterly alien to me. Uh -huh. Oh, that reminds me. Um, do you remember a while back when that one guy? Um, everyone flipped out because that guy wrote a thing about how like women don't like Goodfellas. Oh right, right, right. Yeah, that was that that. Oh my god, yeah, it was uh, Kyle Smith of the New York Post, who's like the he's a, he's a, he's a reactionary uh, prick basically. Like, <laughs> At the New York, he's Post, like the, he's like the, the right wing movie reviewer or whatever. He's, what? he's the right wing movie reviewer. He's like oh, the right wing Christ. movie critic. It you know, stinks. <laughs> We already He's had Jay John... Sherman, but with like the politics of the National Review. Oh, yeah, I was going to say, we already had a John Simon, you know? We don't yeah. fucking need another one, but okay. But yeah, because I remember that, and I remember going like, you know, because, and I understand. No, I, I, I went there, and I, I hit the buzzer to the New York Post, and I was like, hello, you have a hula, what can you move? <laughs> <laughs> Kyle Smith, Kyle Smith, film department is a hula. <laughs> Yeah, like, um, it confused me because, and I understand if the argument was maybe like, oh, women can't relate to this on a certain level because, um, obviously movies about, like, masculine spheres are out of my experience, but they fascinate me because of that. You know, and it's like, that's why, like, you know, stuff like Goodfellas and Mean Streets, I'm like, oh shit, this is really fucking interesting. Well, the really funny thing about the Kyle Smith article was he was like, the ultimate male fantasy 
is having friends that you hang out with. And it's just like, <laughs> Kyle, what are you trying to tell us here? <laughs> this isn't a fantasy. This is just like people usually just have friends and they hang out and have fun. You know, like it's not, he lives vicariously through Goodfellas, not like a, a life of crime and like, you know, uh, as Henry Hill says, you know, the people who got up and go to work every day, they were fucking dead to us. Like, not that isn't the fantasy he's living out. It's the fantasy of just having friends and having fun with him. Someday Kyle would like a friend. I hope someday I can have a friend. No, and uh, and, and to your point about mean streets, is about <clears throat> these, these sort of these hierarchies of like male friendship groups. Uh, again, what I really loved about that, uh, like the Robert De Niro character in that movie, like the Harvey Keitel is the, the sort of more buttoned up one he's an up-and-coming young mafioso he's, he's going, going places agents. he's going places and de niro is the friend who's just like the loose cannon like the fuck up and i, I thought that really captured like the, everyone has that one friend in their group to varying degrees that is the johnny boy character that is yeah, the Robert and um not to movie. get all all tumblr on this discussion but <laughs> as someone who as someone who struggles with uh, adhd <laughs> and has been known to make a few bad decisions in her life I absolutely love that character. Like, the character who just every time has the opportunity to do the, the fuck correct up. thing and just <laughs> doesn't just, like, not do the correct thing, but just makes the situation 20 times worse. Yeah, he's just like a like a social terrorist. Like, in yeah. any situation, <laughs> like, he can just, like, go off at any moment and just make things a million times worse. Or, like, it's just, like, the constant self-sabotaging where, like... Like, the whole thing is, like, he keeps trying to help Johnny Boy over and over and over again. And, like, he just, like, it doesn't work. Like, this guy, like, he, you know. But but he's your friend, though. And, like, and a lot of times those are your best, those are your funnest friends. Yes. So. Oh, yeah. Exactly. Like so I there's said, there's one in every social group. Yeah. Everybody <laughs> has a Johnny Boy. I mean, he's the extreme degree. But, like, it is an archetype that exists on, on a varying level of intensity. But everybody, I think, has a Johnny Boy in their life or had at some point, especially in childhood or, or early adolescence. So who's the Johnny Boy of Chapo? Is it Amber? <laughs> Tell me it's yes. Amber. Yeah, no, it's Amber. <laughs> well, Felix is the one who gets us in trouble the most. So <laughs> That's true. Maybe Felix. Felix is the most problematic. Usually, if someone's angry or we something, it's something we did. It's usually something Felix said. So, it's funny too how um and again like erasure of women shaking my damn head, you know, <laughs> you know, it, like Amber fucking coined the term dirtbag left. You know, when's she gonna get some recognition and vitriol? Uh, most of our uh, most of like the sort of liberal critics uh, who are women themselves just refer to her as a woman. They're like, Chapo consists of, like, blah, 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 blah and a woman. <laughs> <laughs> that's, uh, that's just choice. But again, like, um, getting back to Scorsese, um, yeah, I mentioned uh, Who's That Knocking at My Door, which is interesting as, like, the, the proto-Mean Streets, and I would say to the listeners, is worth a look, um, if only for... Um, when you watch it, you're like, this is like, he was such a Scorsese, like right from the get go. I mean, it's like literally his thesis film, like expanded into a feature and Mm -hmm. his voice is already so defined that it's incredible. Like in the, and it is, it is extremely, I I haven't seen that one, so I I will check it out. It can be rented on Amazon. So, uh, check it out. Awesome. It's like a $2 rental. Um, and it's not, um, it doesn't entirely succeed, but, um, 
in terms of themes that he explored later, you know, like, of course, it's like all about Catholic guilt. It's all about you and your fuck up friends in Little Italy. Um, you know, the, the camera work is very, is very Marty. Also, there's like a, a scene that I think the distributors forced him to insert, which is just uh, possibly a fantasy sequence of Harvey Keitel having sex with a bunch of prostitutes set to the end by the doors. <laughs> which you know it's, that's cool and i also like also shout out to harvey Keitel for um just getting nude right from the start he's always been willing to show his hog in movies it's fucking great like again like official have you seen this policy is we love guys who get nude on camera like thank you <laughs> nude gentlemen of the cinema you are i'm gonna start cam- i'm gonna start camming right now actually <laughs> <laughs> harvey was the original camboy yeah, absolutely. Harvey Keitel, camboy. I love it. That's why he doesn't really make movies anymore. He's camming. <laughs> and, you know, he was quite the dish when he was young. So, you know, there's yeah, that. Yeah, definitely. Also, I love, um, going back to Mean Streets, I love uh, Scorsese's cameo in that. When did, Where does he show up again? He shows up in the bar, and you think he's just going to be in the background, but then he's the one at the end in the car who shoots... De Niro. Oh, right, right, right. Cool. And you see him, and he's so he's so tiny and little. It's adorable. <laughs> okay, so like, I will always love Scorsese because I, I just like it, he seems like such a nice guy in person too. <laughs> and I'll never forget. Did you ever see that thing? It was like one of these like supercuts somebody made. It's on Vimeo. I think it's just this like Brazilian guy did this like huge supercut that like just like edited together Scorsese and Stanley Kubrick movies and like set it to music. Oh no, I didn't see that. You ever see it? It's totally worth checking out. I mean, it's like it's straight crack if you're. <laughs> I think you'll enjoy it. And like yeah, he did this. It's like nine minutes long and it edits together the movies like really in a really crisp, like entertaining way. Like, like he finds threads and like, it makes them sort of interact with one another. He puts it to music. It's really awesome. Scorsese found it and then recorded a video of him watching it and did a message to the guy on Vimeo and told him how much he loved it. Oh my God. That's so amazing. Yeah. That's... I'll, I'll, send you, I'll send you the link to it. Oh dude. Yeah. Because that's like, um, cause the internet is so choked with reaction videos and that's like the one that I want to see. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> So. <laughs> that's so great oh my god but yeah like um i trying to remember if i've said everything i want to say about uh who's that knocking at my door i mentioned uh i mentioned the camera work i mentioned uh harvey gets nude um yeah no i mean like you know because uh you haven't seen it so we can't like discuss in detail i'll just recommend <laughs> that people that people check it out because uh you know as and for completeness obviously but it is uh it is interesting to watch <laughs> in light of uh later scorsese uh, before we wrap up, can I give my plug for what I think is the film of the year uh, now that we're coming towards awards season? Absolutely. It is. I am imploring all the listeners uh, to go see, if you have not already, Paul Verhoeven's L. Yes. Which just won uh, Isabel Huppert, just won the Golden Globe for it. He just won Best Foreign Film. I couldn't be happier for the two of them. Paul Verhoeven's L, I think, is the movie of the year. It is Excellent and problematic. <laughs> <laughs> Good. I wouldn't expect any less from my man, Paul Verhoeven. We are a 100% point 
pro Verhoeven podcast. We've yeah, discussed he's a genius. Stuff on the show he's a genius. Absolutely. Uh, but but warning though, do not read anything about the movie before you go to see it. The less you know about it, the better, because the way the movie's covered gives you a false impression of what you're actually going to get. A lot of people are confused about it. So just like, just know it's Isabel Huppert being amazing and directed by Paul Verhoeven, and it is extremely problematic, but also <laughs> also brilliant. Like. like all I'll say for it is like it captures all of the observations that Verhoeven has made about men in all of his movies, like men and sex, through the eyes of a female protagonist, which he, he I don't think he's I know he did do once before, I think one of his early Dutch movies, but like this is like I think a complete statement like on on his oeuvre in a lot of ways. Nice. I can't I can't wait to go see it myself. I, I have to see this movie. <laughs> All right. Uh, Jennifer, great talking with you. It was good talking with you, Will. Come back anytime. And, I would love uh, to. Thanks again. Thank you. Thank you.